Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Yes, indeed. Welcome in. It is Downtown, the podcast. Brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. I'm Rich Kimball here with Carrie Haskell. Doing what we do every week. And that's uh, talking with interesting people. Two such conversations for you this time around from the world of music. A little bit later on in the second half of the program, reggae legend Jimmy Cliff will talk with us about his first new music in quite some time. A single called Human Touch, an upcoming album. And next year's 50th anniversary of the landmark film, The Harder They Come. That's later in the podcast. Up first, though, a very talented singer and songwriter who has been crafting hits with and for other people since the late 1970s. His first success with Livingston Taylor's First Time Love. He would go on to write huge hits for people like Kathy Matea, Nancy Griffith, and four number ones for Garth Brooks. We had a terrific time talking with the great Pat Alger. Pat, thank you for being with us today. Oh, it's a pleasure. You know, I'm a, I'm a big uh, I'm a fan of Maine. You know, I, I usually spend my at least a month of my summer up there every, every year, except for the last uh, unfortunate two summers hadn't hadn't happened. But uh, which, which part of Maine do you usually come to? Well, I, I've been to quite a few few parts, um, but the the place I usually end up is near Belfast. It's right yeah, near my house, Pat. This is Bruce. It's like right near. That's where I live. So, Penobscot <laughs> Bay. Yeah, that's my favorite place. Yeah. Oh yeah, one of mine too. I I live in Swanville, which is just outside of Belfast. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I usually end up in uh, uh, some. Well, sometimes in Sandy Point. You know where that is. Yep. And and, and sometimes right there, just right outside of Belfast, about five miles, and uh, right on the bay. And uh, well, next time you're up. It's a place where I've written a lot of stuff, actually. So it's it's, it's pretty pretty neat place. Next time you're up, we'll have to go to Long, Young's Lobster Pound and uh, and maybe yeah. talk a little music. Yeah, you know, I I, I often I, I tell people say, "What do you do when you go up there?" You know, I always uh, say, "Well, uh, what do you mean? <laughs> what do yeah. I do when I go up there? Because I don't do anything. That's why I go up there." You know. Um, I think I went once once 10 days without having a conversation with anybody. It was great. Well, that works in Maine. <laughs> we don't find that odd. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's one of the things that I noticed and loved about it, actually. Yeah. Now, Pat, I was reading through the impeccable source uh, Wikipedia that says uh, you, were, uh, you were majoring in architecture when you first uh, started college at Georgia Tech. Is there a is there a connection between architecture and songwriting? Because I can I can see that in some way. Well, you know, I've thought about it. I actually have thought about that a lot. Um, and I also studied graphic design. I was a graphic designer for a long time. And I know I don't, I don't know. I could probably name dozen songwriters who are graphic designers also. Um, I do believe it's something to do with... Uh, in the architecture thing, it's, it's, you know, you're making rooms and then songwriting is about what happens inside those rooms, you know, and it's, there is a kind of a connection. You're building something from mm. scratch. I think that's, that's the, that's the real analogy for me. Um, you're, you know, it's, uh, uh, I've had a lot of time to think about it, of course, but, uh, I think, I think what happens is, um, 
the act of creation is is similar in, in almost every field, I think. Um, and and uh, I, I can honestly say that, uh, you know, having had an uh, education in the arts, it did nothing but inform my writing, absolutely. Well, I like that a lot as somebody who uh, is a, a high school drama director. I love love to see young kids get involved in the arts, even if they never do it again because of the skills that they acquire from that. Oh, absolutely. And, and I, you know, and, and I, I do teach uh, lyric writing at uh, a local college here uh, and I'm a consultant for their program. And, uh, you know, often, often I tell them in the beginning, you know, I don't know how many of you are going to become professional songwriters, but being able to express yourself is going to help you for the rest of your life, you know? Well, you know, I'm really interested to hear you say that because beyond being a great songwriter on your in your own right, you've collaborated with an awful lot of really other fine musicians and songwriters. And I was oh, yeah. thinking back to the to the days of the Woodstock Mountain Review, and I was just looking at all the different people that have been wow. in that, and so many of them that I was fortunate to get to know over the years. If there wasn't the original songwriter supergroup. You know, I really don't know what it is. When I think to myself that, that you and Eric Anderson and Rory Block might have been in the room at the same time. Yeah. Um, well, we you know, the, 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 and the, the traumatic brothers who I, I, I so loved, Artie Traum, um, yeah. and Sebastian and all, and Cindy Cashdollar and Bill Keith and all these guys. What yeah. was it like to have that many good writers in one spot? I know that happens in Nashville, but Nashville is a city. Woodstock's a small town. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I ended up there... Uh, kind of on a whim, really. Uh, I had passed through there on the way back from uh, Newport Folk Festival in the 60s, and uh, and I just thought it was beautiful. And then, you know, the same thing happened another time, and I passed through there again. That time I met uh, Happy and Artie Traum, and Artie and I really connected. And uh, I was also in a duo at the time in Atlanta, and uh, I sent him some stuff, and he wanted to, he was interested in producing us, and when that that group didn't work out, he he and uh, John Harold actually encouraged me to come to Woodstock. Uh, you know, thinking that was that would be a better jumping off place for me besides Atlanta, considering the kind of music I was interested in, in writing and doing. And I, I'll, <laughs> Johnny Harold especially encouraged me to to come. And if you remember him, he oh was yeah, you call the Greenbrier Boys. And uh, just one of my my heroes, really. Well, I, I the the week I moved to Woodstock, he I, I, he let me stay at his house. He didn't tell me he wasn't going to be there. He moved to California, so <laughs> I, I I uprooted my whole life to to be near Johnny Harold. He moved to California, but um, the Trouts are like my family. They're they're both like my brothers. And uh, losing Artie was a big 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 loss for me and he and i toured together for many years and made an album for rounder uh i definitely learned most of what i know about being a performer from artie absolutely artie right. once said to me that you were one of the, his favorite people he had ever worked with anytime he said i would play with pat and go on the road with pat any day and oh, he yeah. said that in a, in a room at a festival in a room full of other musicians and i thought I'm following that away. One of these days, I'm gonna meet this guy. <laughs> wow. That is so. That is so nice to hear. You know, uh, we, we were we really were like brothers because we we could 
we could fight like a cats and dogs and we could also just forget about it the next day and, and have a great time. We spent a lot of time in a Toyota Corolla driving around America <laughs> playing, <laughs> playing shows. And, uh, and, and, and I have to say, uh, uh, Artie, I, the most frustrating thing about my success was I could never figure out a way to help Artie the way he had helped me. That was really probably the most frustrating part of it. I did did sort of uh, help him jumpstart a couple of albums with, with some seed money, but you know, I, I, I could never do for him what he did for me. He just he gave me confidence when I was, you know, I didn't have, I didn't grow up in a, in a very sportive environment. My mother's favorite expression was don't get your hopes up. So you can kind of guess, guess what I had to overcome. Uh, but, you know, Artie, from the very minute we started uh, working together and became friends, he, he believed in me. And, and I still, to this day, uh, credit that with uh, any self-esteem that I, that I managed to come up with. Uh, it came from him. We're talking with Pat Alger here on Downtown. Uh, well, the first uh, big success you had was with our friend Livingston Taylor, uh, one of his biggest yeah. hits, uh, First Time Love, oh, yeah. back in 1980. Yeah. And then uh, later on, you wrote uh, another song that he recorded with uh, one of his brothers. I can't Oh, yeah, James, that guy, uh, City Lights. James Taylor, yeah. Well, you know, when a couple of songwriters cut your song as a songwriter, it's pretty, pretty cool, you know. Uh, I, you know, that, that again was, uh, I could, I could probably draw a line back to Artie for that because we were, we opened a show for Livingston, Artie and I did, and uh, we were warming up backstage and I was playing this song and he stuck his head in the door and said, what's that song? And um, I told him, uh, it was the song I'd, I'd written. And he said, well, uh, I'm, I'm looking for one more song for my album. If you, if you'll send it to me, I'll play it for my producer. And I went, sure, bright, okay, sure. <laughs> so I made this little, uh, I made a little cassette back when 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 boomboxes were the big rage. Oh yeah. It was, I lived on 96th Street in New York at the time. If you know it, if you know what a cross street is, it was where all the buses went. So it was it was the middle of summer. So you had to have you could not close the windows. So I, I made this 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 uh, tape with three songs on it cost me about 79 cents and plus postage <laughs> to send it to him. And I got two pretty good sized hits out of that little demo. Uh, there were three songs and, and he, he got first time love and song called city lights off of that little tape. And, um, if only everything else had been that easy. <laughs> uh, you did great work with a, a woman we lost recently, Nancy Griffith. Yes who uh, was one of my favorite singers and songwriters. How did you two get together? Well, um, I'm, uh, Woodstock Mounds Review, Jim Rooney, um, was just starting to produce records. He had he'd produced a record on John Prine, um, was um, doing, and also uh, I think he engineered the first Allison Krauss album. He was just starting to get a little bit of a rep uh, in that field, you know, as a producer and, um, uh, the, a guy named Richard Dobson, uh, who is a Texas. great Texas, uh, songwriter is also no longer with us, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> Jim's still with us. I'm happy to say, mm. I talked to him the other day about Nancy. Um, he, he brought Nancy, uh, Nancy came to a party at uh, Dobson's house and Jim was there. He met her and he's, 
told her that I was playing down at the Bluebird Cafe. And I just written this song called Once in the Very Blue Moon with a guy named Gene Levine. And I played it that night. She came up to me right after and said, I'm going to cut that song in that, in that twangy Nancy Griffith voice that she had. And uh, I said, okay, with me, you know, and um, I ended up playing on the album and, and I toured with her for, for quite a while. And, you know, there's a lot of those early videos. I'm on those videos and ended up playing on the first three albums um, and, you know, wrote songs and had a song on every record. So it just turned out to be that we, we matched and again, a great songwriter who chooses to cut another songwriter song. I mean, it's just like, I'm thinking this is just one miracle after another, you know? Uh, but we were, we were sort of from the same bag, I guess you'd say she was younger than me, but she, she thought like a, of someone from the sixties and she had that sensibility. And, uh, and those records were those first three albums she did, uh, uh, Once in a Very Blue Moon, uh, Last of the True Believers, and Lone Star State of Mind uh, were pretty unique for Nashville. They really were. Well, Bruce and I were talking about this before the show, too. She she signed the big deal and went on to MCA and, and made some very good albums, but I don't know that anything that she did ever matched the level of those early indie albums. Yeah, um, I, I the Jim really... There's something that Jim Rooney does that that's hard to describe. Um, he he gets everything. He gets the right players together, and he stays out of the way. Makes sure everything sounds good. He knows when he's got a good take, and he knows when he doesn't. And but the rest of it, he leaves to the to to the very talented people he's he's hired to do the job. And and in that particular case, everybody just got along so great. And um, and we were recording up in a, an unusual studio that Jack Clement had up in his uh, attic that had windows. I mean, you can imagine that nothing would be more distracting than, uh, you know, uh, trying to make a record on a summer day where you you can actually see outside and see what you're missing. You know, so we, we really had a great time. And uh, the people that were on those sessions ended up pretty much being the people on those first three albums even the one that wasn't a rounder album uh, the other one uh, Lone Star was was MCA but uh, Tony Brown the guy who produced that album was smart enough to hire the band that Jim used pretty much mm -hmm. and, and it, it, there was a consistent sound on those first three records I think that's what you're almost hearing as much as anything plus I believe her songwriting at that point was just absolutely kind of uniquely original I was wanting to ask you this question for a long time. Very late one night, very late one night, sitting with Guy Clark on my back porch, yeah. we I asked him this question. I said, you know, you've written some great songs by yourself and you've written some great songs with other people. When do you know it's time to say to somebody, I've been working on this and it ain't quite there. Yeah. And he thought about it for a second and he said, well... I suppose when you have one good line and you just don't know where it goes. <laughs> now, now, it was late. <laughs> we had been up a long time. And I was I was wondering what your reaction to that is. Yeah, well, you know, I got to Nashville like a lot of people do, and I, I was pretty much, uh, I, I had co-written a few songs with a buddy of mine who was not a songwriter per se. He was a guy named Peter Kaminsky. He's a famous fly fisherman. He's written a lot of books on fly fishing and, 
and also uh, written a lot of cookbooks. He's a real, really great writer, but he wasn't a songwriter. But I used to crash on his couch a lot, so he'd hear, he'd hear me searching for those two lines that you're talking about, and he'd just throw them out at me. And you know, so we we he's on first time love actually, um, uh, a small piece of that because he threw out a couple of key lines. And uh, for me, when I got here, everybody said, "Well, you got to co-write, you know, and or or are you going to write, you know, do you want to write with me?" I mean, people were. Once in a Very Blue Moon, for example, a guy that I wrote that with, uh, uh, I, I was renting a house and I, something happened to the plumbing and I called a plumber and this guy comes in and sees my guitar and and uh, he says, are you a songwriter? And I said, uh, yeah. He said, well, would you write a song with me? And I said, well, let me see your plumbing first. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, I ended up writing uh, uh, three pretty big songs together. And uh, he was a plumber by trade, but he was also a songwriter. So I, I just jumped. I figured I was in Nashville. I'd just jump in. And I literally would have written with, uh, you know, somebody's grandmother, I guess. <laughs> You, uh, you teamed up with a friend of our show and Bruce's friend, uh, Fred Kohler, to write to what became uh, Kathy Mateus' first number one song, Go and Gone. Yes. Uh, now, that was, uh, <laughs> you know, that was, I, when I came to Nashville, I knew two people. I knew Jim Rooney and I knew a guy named Bill Dale. And Bill was an old friend from Atlanta. He, he had also um, been a performer there and he'd moved to Nashville to see if he could make it. But he, at that point, the time I got there, he had pretty much put that on the back burner. And I, I was trying to write songs with people. I said, well, you got anything you want me to work on? And he pulled out a, a sort of a early version of that chorus and played it for me. And I, I was, I had a, I think it might've been the first meeting I was going to have with Fred. I just pulled it out when I went over there and uh, we wrote it pretty quickly. And uh, uh, Fred at the time, he, I think Fred probably did the, I think Fred was the guy who booked the demo. Fred did a lot of really pretty quirky demos. Yeah, I, I, I was, <laughs> I was not much on demos. When I my idea of a demo was for me to sing into a microphone, make give a pretty good performance, because <laughs> I would always come up with the riffs on the guitar. I was a guitarist. I played guitar on a lot of a lot of my hits actually, and uh, so I would always come up with the intro and sort of the groove and everything. And I just do it myself where I might have a piano player play with me and a harmony singer. But Fred liked to put it around as a producer. And my recollection of the demo is that it sounded awful, but it, not, it might've been fine. I don't know. Anyway, when we played it for Nancy, she really liked it. And, uh, and then Kathy heard it from Nancy's record. You know, that's how she heard it. And uh, you wrote an, another one of my favorite Kathy Matea tunes, A Few Good Things Remain. Yeah, that's kind of an interesting story, too. I wrote that with her husband, who um, who played it for her, I think. And and I don't think she had any reaction to his. He did a demo, and I did, I did one, too. But he played her demo, and I don't think she had any particular reaction to it. <laughs> and, uh, and then I... I played it for Alan Reynolds, who is you know, her producer, right. and really Alan is the he's the song man. Plus, he's one of the, he's in the songwriter's hall of fame too. And so he he really liked my version of it, and he played it for Kathy. He he handed her the tape, and she looked at it. And she said, "Are you pitching this to me?" Because she remembered that 
shot and pitched it to her. And she, anyway, it just worked out. It just worked out. And it was one of the most unusual records of that time. I played on, I played the guitar on that record. And the only thing on that record is me playing acoustic guitar, one track, note overdubs, a bass, uh, uh, Bruce Bowden on pedal steel and, and drums. And, and Kathy sang it live. And it's, it was almost unheard of to have un, a record at that unproduced, you know, and just, just work. It's a beautiful record. Another a collaboration that's been extremely successful for you was as your work with Garth Brooks, four number one songs that you've worked on with Garth. How did you two guys get together? Well, um, I, you know, I had a, when I first came to Nashville, I, 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 I it was really my last stop, I guess. You know, I, I had already been to New York, Woodstock, Boston, Atlanta. I, I wasn't going to go across the Mississippi River. I just wanted to go into California. So when I got to Nashville, it was pretty much the, it, it was, this was, it's going to happen here. Or I'm going back to designing books, you know, or, or, or something. And uh, by that time, um, I, I, I had tried and tried to get a, somebody to sign me to a publishing deal. So I could, I had a, you know, I had a son and my wife worked and we were, you know, we were barely making it a living. I didn't want to go back on the road with, with Artie and, and uh, so in the, what, what, ha what ended up happening, happening was uh, Jim Rooney and Alan Reynolds, uh, these two producers started a publishing company and uh, I went over and beg I literally begged them to just let me be part of it. I said, so you don't have to pay me. I'll, I'll give you, and I gave them the, the publishing to go and gone. Um, and, and one day I was coming out of one of the offices over there at that publishing company and Alan was coming out of his and there was a guy there who I, he was dressed in a duster and the, you know, uh, the boots and the, you know, creased jeans and, the, and a pretty good size hat. And, um, I, I looked at him, I kind of went, he looked like he was about six, four to me. He's not, he's about <laughs> my size. He's about five eleven maybe. And, um, I thought he was right. I thought he was working with John Wayne. That's what I thought. <laughs> so he introduced he he introduced me to him and said, you know, uh, this is Garth Brooks. I'm thinking of, you know, you know, thinking of doing doing some work with him. But he's a really good songwriter. Maybe you guys ought to get together. And you know, I'm a pretty hard headed guy. You know, I I like to kind of make those decisions myself. But this one time, I went, oh, really? <laughs> and um, <laughs> and it turned out he was playing that night, and uh, I went down to see him. And he played a song called uh, "If Tomorrow Never Comes" that he'd written with this friend of mine named Kemp Lazy. And I, I went, man, if that's what he's doing, yeah, let's get together and write some songs. And you know, he was just a guy named Garth Brooks from Oklahoma. Then though, <laughs> you know, we were actually pitching those songs for other artists and. Uh, the Thunder Rolls got cut by um, uh, Tanya Tucker first. Right. And uh, what she's doing now got cut by Crystal Gale first. And we were, and Alan was getting really annoyed. He, didn't, he was trying to make a record and we were pitching our songs like <laughs> they weren't going to end up on the record. But um, thank goodness. Uh, I mean, you can't, you cannot, you cannot really grasp what it's like to have been part of that. I still can't grasp it, honestly. It 
overshadowed every other thing I had done completely and, and not in a, not complaining way. I'm not complaining about it, but I mean, it's so, it's so huge that uh, it's hard to fathom it. I, I kind of backed away from it. It was just a little overwhelming. For, well, and as know. he did too. And I, I give him all the, the credit in the world for, I mean, this guy was at the, the, the absolute top of the game, the biggest selling artist this side of Elvis and just decided yeah. to walk away because he thought it was important to be a dad. Yeah, no, he's, he's a unique, unique person. I, I've often said this, um, that he's the only guy I ever met who was prepared to be famous because yeah. he took it as a responsibility, not just a, 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 you know, an opportunity. I mean, most people take fame and, and fortune as an opportunity, just do what the heck they want. But he was really had he had a sense of responsibility to the audience and if there's another side to him that's phony i've never seen it and not even for a sec he's he's just what you what you see there is what you get and i've been with him in all kinds of situations it has been a, an awful stretch in music here in the last couple of weeks with nancy griffith the great tom t hall uh, don everly you opened uh, for the everly's for for many many years what was that experience like for you? Well, I, I, I got a, I, I once, uh, I'm trying to think, I, the Country Music Hall of Fame did a thing, they have a program called Poets and Prophets, and they'll feature a songwriter on a day and have a career retrospective, and it's an interview, and you perform, and other people come and perform. And uh, the guy was interviewing me about about stuff like that, and he, and I started to raise that raise the name Jim Rooney again. I said, "Look, basically, if there's no Jim Rooney, there's no Pat Alger, you know." Because once again, uh, I, I think pretty much the first week I was in Nashville, we went to get some lunch at Brown's Diner, which is a famous burger joint here, and sitting at the bar was Don Everly, and uh, he introduced me to him. And I had the temerity not to ask him anything about the Everly Brothers. <laughs> I never did. And um, we had some common interests that had nothing to do with music. And we we just became pals. He had a band called uh, Don Everly and the Dead Cowboys. And uh, he he knew that I was a performer and a songwriter. And he we we uh, somebody I was supposed to play at this club called the Subler here, and the guy canceled. And um, he stepped in and, and filled in and then he then it went so well that we ended up doing every monday for a long time there and when the everly brothers did reunite in 90 in 84 i pitched a song to him that i'd written with my friend rick bearsford and i got i was the you know one of the only unknown songwriters on at eb84 <laughs> everybody else was like paul mccartney right uh, Mark Knopfler and all those people. And uh, so evidently uh, some comedian was scheduled to be the opening act for that tour. And about 10 days before the tour, he canceled. And he, Don called me up in a in kind of a panic. He said, would you do me a flavor? And I said, why? Of course. He said, would you open for the Everly Brothers for a while? And I, I went, yes. <laughs> yes, I will. Yes, I will. And um, he said it was just, you know, just for a few weeks till we find can find, a, a, you know, somebody uh, that, you know, I guess famous is what they're looking for. But after about three weeks, they both came to me and said, hey, this is working out really good. And I ended up doing the entire 84 
world tour and the 85 did all that and then for every year through 80 through 93 i did a portion of the tour and uh, it was just so uh, again like it's kind of like meeting garth brooks you can't you can't really understand what the everly brothers meant to people mm. uh, and the fact that they had not been together for a decade and and suddenly uh, all these peoples whose um, lives had been changed by that music getting to connect with it again and 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 i th- i was i was very concerned that i was just going to be booed off the stage from stage to stage from coast to coast there's Pat Eldry going again <laughs> but they embraced me uh, I, I worked up a little act I actually did a couple of Fred songs I did uh, let's talk dirty in the wine <laughs> yeah. yes you probably know that song <laughs> yeah yeah I'll have to tell you a very funny story about that called shop shop that I did yeah. and uh, and then I did a bunch of my songs and I had a one buddy Holly song and I had the song that was on the Everly Brothers album. So I had enough entertainment value. Plus, I just had to go up and do 30 minutes. And what they loved about it was there was no changeover. Uh, I, I sang at Don's mic, played my guitar. You know, I had, I mean, the, I, this is the kind of stuff that happened on that tour. George Harrison came backstage at the Hammersmith Odeon in London and said, how do you get that sound on your guitar, mate? <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh, well, step over here, my friend. <laughs> and, uh, so it was just an unbelievable thing. And then Don and I, we were we were good friends for a very, very long time. But as you know, people get get onto different things, and and I hadn't seen him in a while. And but I was I was I have to say I was just heartbroken to hear that he died. And the one the guy that called me to tell me, I saw his the, his number come up on my phone, and I said. To my wife, I said, Don Everly's died. Mm. And it, I didn't have to answer the phone. But uh, he was a he was a very kind man to me. And Phil was just about the nicest fellow. And one of the funniest guys I ever met in my life. I rode on Phil's bus. There was a Don bus and a Phil's bus. Don's bus w- was about the, the same temperature as the crisper in your refrigerator. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't take that, so I rode on Phil's bus, and we had so many laughs, I just can't even tell you. Well, uh, I have spent a lot of time over the weekend listening to a couple of your solo albums, True Love and Seeds, and, and it's so often the case, and to me, nobody does a song like the person who wrote them, and uh, I love your versions. I appreciate that. I've got a, I have a new album. Uh, I, I finished it just as the pandemic was beginning, so I, I kind of thought, well, what's the point of putting this out at this point? You know, I mean, what am I going to do? I'm not going to be able to promote it. But I am going to go ahead and and and, and get it out. Uh, hopefully, my birthday is next month. I'm going to go ahead and try to get it out for my birthday. And I'll, I'll be sure and send you a copy. Excellent. Well, we'll look forward to that. Uh, Pat, we could talk with you all day long. This has been great. Thank you so much for making some time for us. I hope we can do it again down the road. Yeah, anytime you want to, man. It's, a, it's, it's like I say, Maine means a lot to me. I just texted my old uh, roadie from my band, one of my bands in uh, Atlanta, uh, uh, Bernie McDonald. He he lives there in Bangor, I believe. And uh, uh, one of the girls, that I, one of the women that I wrote a lot of my hit songs about lives down in Ogunquit. And uh, hopefully they'll both be uh, tuning in. Well, and if you're, I tell you, if you're in Belfast area and you've got time, come up and visit us in the studio. I'll drive you up and 
buy you a lobster. Oh, that would give me that would give me something to do. <laughs> and if you don't want to have any conversation, yeah, we can just sit here and stare at each other. It's great. It, what's, it, it's just uh, Maine is. Uh, you really hit on something. I could go to a bar there in Maine. I didn't go very often, but if I wanted to go to a bar and have a Guinness at the bar and sit there, there wasn't going to be CNN on TV. It's more, more likely to be the Little League World Series. Right. <laughs> and, and, and nobody's going to ask me what my uh, view on uh, wearing a mask was, you know. <laughs> you got down to the Front Street Pub and nobody will bother you. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, Pat, uh, thank you so much. Look forward to hearing the new album. Uh, be well, and, and we'll talk with you again down the road. Okay. I tell you, when it comes out, I'll we'll, we'll do another interview if you want. you got to be super. We'll make a day. Thank you, Pat. All right. Thank you. Songwriter Pat Alger with us here on Downtown, the podcast. We'll take a little break. When we come back, the great Jimmy Cliff after this from Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit crossinsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Jimmy Cliff, who's also working on a soon-to-be-released album, Bridges. And we talked with Jimmy about the new music and next year's 50th anniversary of the film The Harder They Come. Here's Jimmy Cliff on Downtown. Hello, Jimmy. Thank you so much for being with us today. Blessed love, Rich. It's my pleasure to be with you, sir. I love the new song, Human Touch. It is a perfect song for the times, and so I was surprised to learn that uh, it's actually a lyrics that you wrote a few years ago. You must have been delighted to realize how perfect they are for the year 2021. Indeed, indeed. Uh, yes, I did write the song in um, 2017 and recorded it a little later, down in 2017. And uh, actually, I wasn't, none of us knew. What, what what the future has. We didn't know that we were going to have a COVID virus that would touch the whole planet. And uh, so, yeah, it's a great, I said, it's something that could be very soothing to the people at this time going through what we're going through. Well, there's no the question. Touch. We all need it. We all miss that human touch up for sure. Now, originally the song was about, uh, I believe, what, being on tour and missing your family? Exactly. Um, actually, I was in Japan, and uh, as the story goes, I tell the story again. The show finished, and there was a piano at the back there in the dressing room, and uh, this 
feeling just come over me and I went to the piano and start playing. And uh, I was very conscious because I used the technology that existed that I could phone my family and all of them and talk to them and Skype and all of that, or some other app. But I did miss the human touch. So that was how that song came. What is it, Jimmy, about music and its power to bring people together? Well, you know, music is the first thing that uh, music is sound. Sound is tone. And like in the Bible, it says, in the beginning was the word. And word is sound. And music is sound, tone, rhythm, and all of that. So it touches the human being because it was from the beginning of time as we know it. We're talking with Jimmy Cliff here on Downtown. Do you feel, and I mean, it seems that you do, that this is just a, this is another step on a journey for you, a journey uh, at this stage of life, but also musically, and uh, that everything has led you to this point. I'm glad you mentioned that word journey because it's one of my songs that I close my show with because we all are on a journey in this life on the planet Earth. So my journey, yeah, has been an interesting and fruitful one. And uh, I look forward to the continuation of my journey, where I am. I'm very pleased and grateful to what I have achieved, but there is greater yet to be done. Uh, Along with the new single, you've got a new album coming out soon called Bridges. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, Bridges is another one of the songs that I, I wrote from a long time. And uh, Bridges is commenting on the fate of the world, as I usually do, live my life, feel the feel, feel of people and my own experiences. And Bridges is talking about we need some bridges. We need bridges. And it has to be cemented with love. Bridges in the political field, in the economical field, in the religious field. We need bridges to we can be all come together. We need that. Without that, the humanity will not survive. Bridges, yes, indeed. It's a great message. It seems of late we've been burning them more than building bridges. That's what we need to do. Build them instead of burning them, indeed. Yes, sir, you're very right. (laughs) It is hard to believe, and I'm sure it is for you as well, that next year we'll be celebrating the 50th anniversary of The Harder They Come. Such a a landmark movie. Uh, First of all, where has that time gone? Uh, Indeed, where has it gone? That's what we always say. Where did the time go? Well, yeah, it's the 50th anniversary and um, seems just like yesterday to me. But I'm looking forward to celebrating it and we don't know what we exactly we're going to do but the move this the movie and the new album will be coming out just about that same time and i'm looking forward to do some things with the people who i made it with the 
the director, Perry Hensel, is gone, but uh, his uh, family has taken over the legacy of what he has done. So we will be collaborating and do some things to celebrate that movie. Obviously, it was an important film for you, but I have to think, wasn't it also an important film for your home, uh, for the people of Jamaica? Indeed, it was. It was very important for me because it put me on another ladder in the field that I am. People knew me as a singer-songwriter, but uh, they come to recognize that, oh, he's a good actor, too. And, you know, I've always looked at myself as a better actor than singer. And when the way Mr. Ensel got me to do the movie, he like he read my mind and he said, you know, I think you're a better actor than singer. <laughs> I said, wow, only I knew that I was thinking that. <laughs> and because he said that, he got me to do the movie. That is wonderful. We've lost some, some giants in the music world in the last year or so with uh, Toots and uh, Bunny Whaler, uh, so important to not just reggae music, but music all over the world. Yes, indeed, because, um, yes, Toots and Bunny Whaler, but also Hugh Roy, which is mm. the daddy of the rapping, the rap, or we call it DJ. So Hugh Roy went as well about the same time, a little before Bunny Whaler. And you know, as you know, uh, the rapping is influenced very much from the DJ. They used to take it over to New York or Philly or wherever, all outside of Jamaica. And so the music of the mainstream music of today is very much inspired by Jamaican music. Are you still swimming every day, Jimmy? Oh, yes. I didn't get to do my swimming yet because I woke up early this morning. I did my walk. I also do walking. I walk like an hour early, and then I come back and I swim for at least a half an hour. So when I'm finished these interviews, I'm going to do my swimming. Excellent. Well, uh, you stay healthy and safe. It is so wonderful to have new Jimmy Cliff music out there. The new single is called Human Touch. Uh, Jimmy, it's a treat for us. Thank you so much for making some time for us today. Thank you very much indeed. I appreciate talking to you. Oh, that was great. Jimmy Cliff talking with us on Downtown. Our thanks to Jimmy. Thanks to the great Pat Alger as well, two very talented songwriters and singers visiting with us this week. Thanks to you for joining us. Leave a nice uh, five-star review. That would be awesome. Subscribe if you haven't already. Tell your friends, spread the good word, and uh, we'll, we'll take care of you somehow along the way, even if it's just with love in our hearts for you. Either way, join us next time for Downtown, the podcast brought to you by Cross Insurance.